Welcome to the Rashi Share, and we'll start with something on this week's parasha, which is Matzorah. And in Perak Yudalad Pasuk Lamadalad, we have a pasuk and a comment of Rashi, which is quite well known. When you come into the land of Canaan, which I give to you as a possession, and I will put the plague of Tzarat in the house of the land of your possession. And then it says, And it will be that the one who has the um, house will tell to a Kohen, will come and tell to a Kohen, saying, like a nega appeared to me in the house. Now Rashi says on Pasuk Lamadalat, and this is quite well known, Basura Hilahem, this is good news for them, Shahanagayim Bayam Alehem, that the plagues will come on them. Why is it good news? So Rashi goes on to explain that the Amorayim, when, not the Amorites, Amorayim as in the Mishnah, but the Amorayim who were the people living in Eretz Israel until the Jews came, um, would hid treasure, would hide treasure in the walls of their houses. The Jews would take over their houses and then they would get Sarat in the houses so they'd have to knock down the houses and find the treasure. That's what Rashi has to say. And it's obviously quite perplexing how he turns something which inherently is bad, after all, you get Sarat because of things like Lush and Hara, into something good. But that's not my focus. That certainly is uh, something worth discussing. But it's also, I'd like to point out, that Rashi, in his comment, is doing something else. And in order to... Um, identify what Rashi's doing, I refer you to a parsha in Bereshit, so you've got the Chomashim there, um, where um, in Perakavchet in Vayetze, where Yaakov wakes up from his dream. And I want to go through some Pesukim very quickly in order to get to the point. We'll start with Perakavchet Pasuk Yudchet, and he took the stone which he had put under his head or around his head. Um, and he made it into a matzeva, a pillar, and he poured oil on its head. And he called the name of the place Beit El, and Luz was the place of the name beforehand. And really, this is actually where it gets interesting. Yaakov made a neder, a promise, saying, If Hashem will be with me, and he will guard me on this way. And he gives me bread to eat and clothes to wear. And I will return in peace to the house of my father. And Hashem will be to me as a God. And this stone, which I placed as a matzeva, will be a bet elokim, a house of God. And here's the point. In Pasuk Kaf Bet, Rashi says, V'ha even hazot, kach mefaresh vav shzu shel v'ha even. This is how you explain the vav of v'ha even. Im ya'aseh li et eila, af ani eseh zot. If Hashem does for me these things, then I, af, in response, will do this. What does Rashi mean? And since this is not the Rashi that we're learning consistently, I'm rushing through this. But the point is this. You've got all these vavs. If you look at Pasuk Kaf, Hashem, uh, Yaakov makes a neder, and he says, if Hashem will be with me, and will guard me, and will give me food to eat, and bread, uh, clothes to wear, and I return, and Hashem will be to me for a god. And then it says, and this stone will be a matzeva, will be bet elokim. Now the problem is, where does the substantive clause start? There's a lot of ifs. If you do this and this and this and this, then the following will happen. Where is the then? The problem is in Hebrew, in classical Hebrew, there's no then. There's no T-H-E-N to tell you when the if clause has stopped and the then clause has started. There's just a vav. But there are lots of different vavs. And you could say, for instance, you could read it, if you guard me on this way and give me bread to eat and clothes to wear, then you could say, Posit Kaf Aleph starts the response. V'shavti b'shalom. Then, in response, I will return in peace. Or you could say it's the next clause. V'haya Hashem li lelokim. Then, Hashem will be me my God. In other words, I will accept Hashem as my God. 
Or you could say the next clause. Rashi says that's the one. Rashi says in Pasuk Kafbet, he explains explicitly, that's what is meant by the Vav of Verha Even, as opposed to all the Vavs of the previous clauses. This one is the response. And Rashi says, Im li et eile, af ani zot. If you do this for me, then I will do that. What's that got to do with our Parsha? Because if you look back in Matsura, actually there's a similar problem. Because if you look at Pasuk Lamadalat, so you could read that as saying, when you come into the land, and I, Hashem, put a nega at Sarat in the house, then what happens? The person who has the house will go to the Kohen. Or even you could say... Um, the uva asher lo hakbayit is also part of the if clause. When you come into the land and I put uh, a plague in your house and the person who has the plague goes to the Kohen, then what will happen? Vehigid la Kohen. He will tell the Kohen. Or it goes on because there's more vavs in the next pasuk and I think even in the next pasuk. So we're stuck in the sense we don't know exactly when the, then, the if clause or the when clause stops and the substantive clause begins until Rashi tells us. So this business that Rashi says in Pasuk Lamadalad that it's good news for them um, not only does he tell us it's good news because I knock down the houses and find the treasure, but he also tells us how to read the Pesukim, that the Venatati Negat is the response to Kitavo El Aretz. So when you come into the land, that's the qualifying clause, what will happen? The substantive clause begins almost straight away, Venatati Negat Sarat When you come into the land, you know what will happen? I will put a Negat Sarat in your house. And then what happens next is a consequence of that then the person who has the neger will go to the Kohen, etc. Okay, we were back in Bereshit, in Perak Bet, Pasuk, um, Kaf Gimel. And Pasuk Kaf Gimel said, um, This time, uh, having been introduced to Chava, he said, This time, it's a bone of my bones, a flesh of my flesh. Um, in, and we talked last week about what Rashi says on the word Zotapam, this time, implying that only now uh, Adam found, found sort of compatibility and uh, a cooling of his mind when he had relations with Chava, because having had relations with all the animals, it didn't really do it for him. And we talked about what that could mean, and we saw different interpretations. And then moving on, the next part of the Pasuk says, Lezot yekarei isha, ki meish lukacha zot. For this, it is called, or she is called isha, because from ish, this one was taken. So isha is related to ish. And Rashi says there, Loshon nafal al Loshon. The expression falls on the expression. It's a phrase he uses in a few places, saying the words, it makes sense. The word is the right word. The word isha is appropriate because it comes from the word ish. Now, I just pause but for a moment before we see the next words of Rashi. I just want to share an idea that I heard years ago from Rabbi Jonathan Sachs before he was chief rabbi. And he said, it, what's interesting is in this verse, it's the first time you see the word isha the first time a woman is defined. But it's also the first time you see the word ish, which is an interesting point. Up till now, what has the man been called in Hebrew? Adam. Why is he called Adam? Because he comes from the Adama. It's, it's a pretty earthy, literally, uh, dis- definition of him. He, ish is something much more lofty. Ish is no longer minha Adama. Ish is a personality. It's an individual but says Rabbi Jonathan Sachs um, that he becomes an ish only because and at the same time as she becomes an isha. So it's not just apologetics, but it's nice. It's not that she is an isha only because she's an ish, in, in the sense that would imply some sort of dependency and some sort of inferiority. But on the contrary, he's only an ish because she is an isha. Anyway, back to Rashi. So Rashi says, having said, Lashon nafala Lashon, Mikan, 
שנברא העולם בלשון הקודש. From here we see that the world was created with the holy language, i.e. Hebrew. What does he mean? He means that there's something intrinsic in the naming of Ish and the naming of Isha, just like there was something intrinsic in the naming of the animals. We didn't hear what those names were, but we're told that Adam gave them names. And as we explained at the time in uh, Pasuk Kaf, that the names that Adam gave were not just like Fido or, or, or Rover or, or Buttercup, but they were the essence of the thing. So here also, when the Torah, uh, or rather, sorry, Adam, uh, Adam is giving the name. Um, yes, Adam is giving the name. Adam is speaking for the whole of Pasuk Kaf Gimel. Um, we see that he's giving the name Ish and giving the name Isha. And says the Midrash, which is where Rashi is quoting, it's only in Hebrew that the word for man and the word for woman come from the same root. And the Midrash quotes Greek and says it doesn't work in Greek. And it quotes Aramaic and says it doesn't work in Aramaic. It's only in Hebrew. So straight away, I thought, well, hang on a minute. What about English? Man and woman. Well, actually, Rashi's right, and the Midrash is right, and it doesn't work in English, because what does woman mean? Woman comes from the old English, wife of the man. So it's not like an independent word equal to man. It's dafka, the opposite. Woman is something completely dependent on man. By the way, that's why the plural of woman is women. That's why the O turns into an I sound, because it comes from wife or whiff in, ancient, in old English. So you'll be pleased to know that it doesn't work in English. We're still right on that one. Now, there are a few million languages, or no, I think it's several thousand languages in the world. Um, I don't know if anyone's checked them all, but the Midrash says it's unique to Hebrew that Ish and Isha come from the same root. How does the naming work with the interpretation that they were separated? Like they were, um, what's the word? Joined together, and then what? If you were thinking of the word hermaphrodite, that's not what they were, by the way. They were two sort of separate ones stuck together, making one. Um, what's the problem? So originally they were, according to that, which we said last week, Rashi seems to be following, yeah. they were one single entity yeah. with like two bits stuck together. Yeah. But they became one single entity. And that single entity was called Adam. But once they're split and they become male and female, then they take on a new identity of yeah, Ish and Isha. they're split, if you're not, one's not being taken from the other? Well, yes. Um, because the word ki uh, ish lukachazot. Yes, from the man was taken this one, this female one. It doesn't quite fit. Well, the way I've been explaining it anyway is, is they were like two stuck together and they were split. And that is what, more or less what the Gemara says. They were created with two faces. Which, which implies very strongly two, um, uh, nearly two separate ones, except they weren't separate. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet, and yet, the, it does speak, it, 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 I think what you're pointing out, and you're right to point out, is it's not quite neutral. Um, it does say clearly in Kaf Aleph that a tzela, which means a side, was taken from him. Um, one of his sides was taken um, it doesn't say from him. One of his sides was taken from him. And here in Kaf Gimel, it does say, from Ish was taken this one. Um, so I'm not quite sure. So you're saying it doesn't sound quite like it was two things that were stuck together and then split. It sounds a little bit more one-sided than that. Yes, okay. I, I haven't got an answer. I'd really have to go back to the Gemara, which is where she gets it from, and how the Gemara understands Shnei Partsufim. Um, so you're quite right. It, there is an element that something was taken from the male and that became the female. I haven't got a better answer. I mean, I haven't got any answer. <laughs> okay, so I, I'm still not 100% sure why Rashi has to explain, has to say, Mikan shenivra ha'olam balashan ha'kodesh. From this we learn that the world was created with Hebrew. Um, it could be that Rashi is just saying something nice and interesting, but that's a problem because we generally understand Rashi, and most of the Mephoshim of Rashi understand, that he never says something just nice and interesting. He's explaining something in the Pasuk. And so what is he say, explaining in the verse here when he says, I think the best I can explain, because I didn't see anyone who actually answers this question directly, is that 
if you're going to call the uh, man Ish and the woman Isha, and um, that's their intrinsic name, so the name, the language which is used for Ish and Isha is the language which was used to create the world. And by the way, the implication is it was the language everyone was speaking until the time of the dispersion at the time of Migdal Bavel, when they were all given different languages. So there's only one language which really works. There's only one language where male and female, man and woman, come from the same root, Ish and Isha. So the world had to be created with the language where it worked, that Ish and Isha came from the same root, and the only language that fits is Hebrew. Okay, let's move on to Pasuk Kaftalat. Al Kane, Ya Azov Ish et Aviv ve et Imo, Vedavak ve Ishto, Vahayu levasar echat. Therefore, a man leaves his mother and father and cleaves to his wife or his woman, and they, they are one flesh. So there's a few things to say about this verse. Rashi's got a few things to say. And the first thing he says is, Al Kane Yazov Ish. Ruach HaKodesh Omeret Cain. The Holy Spirit said this, as opposed to, who else could have been saying it? Adam. Because Adam was speaking in Pasuk Kaf Gimel. And that's not guesswork, that's explicit. Vayome HaAdam. And that's why I said, by the way, that it appears that the words L'zot Yikarei Isha, Kime Ish Lukachazot, is also said by Adam. That's the continuation of his words, which start at the beginning of Kaf Gimel. And only at the beginning of Kaf Dalad does Rashi have to point out that it's not Adam speaking anymore. And it's obviously not Adam speaking. I mean, it's obvious, but still Rashi needs to point us out. So otherwise, we get confused. Because Al-Kain Yazov Ish Etoviv Etimo is not the sort of thing that Adam would say. At that time in the world, there was no mother and father to anyone. And clearly, this is a much more sort of global thing about the, the world in general. So Rashi points out that it's not Adam speaking anymore. It's, if you like, the, the narrator of the Torah speaking, or HaKadosh Baruch Hu speaking. It doesn't say Vayoma Hashem, so it's Ruach HaKadosh. Now, the next thing that Rashi says is, Le'esor Arayot al Bnei Noach. To forbid the forbidden relationships for the, literally, the children of Noach. So the children of Noach we usually associate with the generation that came after Noach. That doesn't make any sense here because Adam is 10 generations earlier. So we have to remember that Bnei Noach actually just means the entire world as opposed to just the Jewish people. Bnei Noach is the world and Bnei Yisrael is Jewish people. Now, there was no Noach at this point, but we still use the word Bnei Noach because that's just the phrase that applies to the, the, the world when they spread out. But it means that Adam Harishan, by the way, we talked about this a little bit last week, was also commanded not just one mitzvah about not eating from the tree, but he was actually commanded, as the Gemara says, all the Sheva mitzvah B'nai Noach, and certainly Rashi says he was commanded about Arayot. In other words, why does Rashi say this? Because what is the idea of, he leaves his mother and father, and he cleaves with his wife. He cleaves with his wife, and not with the relatives, or the other species, or the other forbidden relationships which the Torah forbids not just to Jews, but to non-Jews as well. He leaves his mother and father, i.e. he leaves his relatives, and the relations he has is with his wife. And then it says, they will become the basar echad. What does it mean they will become one flesh? Now this is, I think, very, I mean, every Rashi is very interesting, but I think that what we're going to see is a little bit sort of um, counterintuitive. We probably have, if I could say, a romantic notion, man and wife get together, they love each other, they're like one, um, they talk about each other as if they're the same person. That's the ideal nature of the relationship. They become totally integrated and all that stuff. But Rashi doesn't quite say that. He says, Basar echad, havlad notzar al yedei shenehem. The baby is formed through both of them. The sham naaser basaram echad. And there it becomes their flesh is one. So it's all about reproduction. Now, by the way, the Jewish view of marriage, and I don't want to get involved in this, it's probably not why you're here, but the Jewish view of marriage is not just about reproduction. However, that's a very important part of it. Um, it's certainly not the totality, but it can't be denied as a, as a major part either. Says Rashi, that is how man and woman become one flesh. 
because between their union, they create another person. Now, um, the question is asked, well, hang on a minute. That's not so unique to humans. It happens to animals. It happens to all um, bisexual species. Bisexual is in the sense of they have more than one sexual gender, uh, as opposed to amoeba. Um, in every one of these species, including all the animals that we know, you have a male and a female, and they generate a, um, uh, another generation. And we don't say that they are forbidden to have arayot, forbidden relationships, etc. So, uh, so I saw it said that when a man and a woman have a child, that child is known as the child of that particular father and that particular mother. And they form the family unit. And that is unique to humankind. And I'd also just like to give my own little thought on this, although I think actually it comes out of Rashi. That um, it's, not a, it's, a, it's a question about when did human beings become recognizably human? Um, I, there's a little subtext to this, and that is this, that if we say that the world is nearly 6,000 years old, that doesn't actually refer to the world, it refers to humankind, because we date the uh, 6,000 years from the creation of man, not from the creation of the world, which was either six days earlier or six time periods earlier. We date it from the creation of man. Now, by the way, I'm, I'm going off a little tangent here. If you, anyone has a problem with accepting the world or even mankind is 6,000 years old, it's not the end of the world. It's not one of the Ikrea Muna. It's not one of the fundamental principles of faith. One isn't a heretic if one insists that the old world is older than that. There really is not a big problem. But nevertheless, it's nice to find a way of understanding what Chazal say when the world is 6,000 years old. And uh, it's nice to say that, okay, well, that's when man was created. The problem with that, from a scientific point of view, is recognisable man was created 200,000 years ago. So I've seen suggestions that 6,000 years refers to when man reached a certain level of civilization, And that sort of defines man in, as modern man, as opposed to the prehistoric version. And that you could date to around 6,000 years. I'd like to say something else, and I don't know if anthropology bears me out. But I want to say that what really contributed to man's civilization is the creation of the family unit. I think, by the way, that is, if you like, the killer app which allowed mankind to develop into the incredibly uh, sophisticated builder that mankind is today. It's when the idea of a family um, where both parents, mother and father, are invested in each other and invested together in their child. And before you had the family unit, you didn't have that level of investment. Which is why, by the way, when I think today we're seeing the weakening, significant weakening of the family unit, I personally think it's a crisis for humanity. But anyway, enough uh, of speeches there. Let's get back to the verse. Rashi says, what is it that makes man and wife, man and woman into one flesh? It's the generation of the child. And I understand that, as some of the Mephoshim do, as the creation of the family unit. When mother and father and child are identified together as a distinct unit, in other words, the child is the child of that father and of that mother, and that father and mother together have produced that child, which is something unique to humans, and you don't find in the animal kingdom that the child is known as the child of that mother and that father. I mean, sometimes breeders will identify in terms of where does the lineage come. They will say that this calf is the product of this bull and this cow, but they're not creating a family unit. Whereas what the Torah is saying with Rashi's interpretation is that this idea of man and wife, man and woman, uh, uh, leave all others, forbidden relations, and actually others who would have been previously for, uh, permitted until the, they got married, and form a child between them, that is the creation of the family unit. And that is what's unique to humankind, and that we're being told about at the very dawn of creation here as a crucial part of the process. Okay, that really concludes the story of creation. Now we get into a particular episode about what happens next to this man and to this woman. So we've gone through chapter one and chapter two. We've actually got one more puzzle to go, but I think there is a natural break here at the end of Kafdalad. We have come to the end of the process of creation. Now we'll see what happens to this man and this woman while they're in Gan Eden. Any questions? I've been talking nonstop for 24 minutes. Any questions? Yes. So, Brooklyn, Bailey, I'm sure I've got a 
The baby's what we call one flesh, right? So when it says... It's not quite. The baby is what makes them into one flesh. Okay. So I think it's really the three of them together. The baby isn't one flesh. Or three of them together. And that's how I understand. Look at... basaram echad. The question is, what's sham? There, it is made their flesh into one. Now, you could read that as the baby, or you could read it, as I prefer to read it, as the process of having the baby. So, it's the three of them make the mother and father into one. That's how I read it. But you could read it as they are one flesh in the baby, but I don't think that's exactly what Rashi's saying. Yeah, because I was reading it that way, mm-hmm. where it's the baby. I mean, one flesh means the baby, but it says you shall become one flesh. So, you shall become I don't think it means you will become the baby. I think it means by having the baby, you will become united into one. And I understand that, and I, I really do, this is my interpretation, but I think it's valid, as the one, the, the one flesh is the united family unit. But did they really go anywhere then? Because before they were separated, they were one flesh, literally. Right. Now after separated, they were a baby, they're still one flesh. What was the point of all this? What was the point of all this? Well, um, uh, um, it could be. I mean, it's very hard to understand this because uh, how do we take this this uh, original idea of creation literally or metaphorically? Um, and if it was, what does it mean that they were two stuck together? I suppose um, if they were two stuck together back to back, they couldn't have actually procreated. Um, and I mean that seriously. Um, it's also the case, and, and Rashi doesn't say this, which is why I don't want to dwell on it, but I, it's uh, famously brought out by Rafael Avechik and the Lonely Man of Faith that Adam has to have that sense of loneliness, of needing a companion in order to make companionship work. So the Adam feeling alone is an integral part of the process by which he can then be united and then feel that sense of fulfillment, which he only feels because he was lonely before. Also, I'm just cool that there's like the creation of potential. Like, there were, when they were together, it was like perfection, and like, this is what humanity is ultimately meant to be. But we always need these, like, maybe a cop out answer, but like, working towards something. So. so, and how is the separation and the unity? Because if they're already together, then there's nothing to work on. Ah, okay, okay. Well, it's not dissimilar from what I said. And it's probably also a good metaphor for the fact that when one is making a partnership, one has to keep working at it. Okay, Pasuk Kaf which so as I say, this takes the story now into a particular direction. V'hiyu shenehem arumim, and the two of them were naked. Ha'adam ve'ishto, the man and his woman, and I, I will translate literally, even though it sounds a little bit gendered. V'lo yit bashashu, and they were not embarrassed. Okay, so Rashi's going to say something um, which is the beginning of Rashi's understanding of what was the Eitz Hadar Tovara, the tree of knowledge of good and evil, um, which is a big topic and uh, obviously it's something we really want to try and understand. Now Rashi, as his star, doesn't give us a treatise. He doesn't like, stop compl- uh, commentating phrase for phrase and says, let me give you an introduction to what the tree of life was all about or the tree of knowledge was all about. So we have to work it out from the various references he makes. And the first one is this verse. So, they were not embarrassed. Why not? That's our question that Rashi's going to answer. Why were they not embarrassed? Because they did not know the way of sniut. Sniut is a somewhat overused word, um, and it's also hard to translate. We translate it as modesty. Um, it's more than just covering up the bits of the body that should be covered up. It's about the whole way that we conduct ourselves. It applies to men as well to women. But we'll just stick to sniut. I think it's better if I don't even translate it at all. They did not know the way of sniut. Lahavchin. Ben Tov Lara to distinguish between good and evil. Let me read on and then we'll come back to this idea. The Afalpi Shinitna Bo Dat so Dea, even though Dea understanding was put into him, and how do we know that he had understanding? Which I will slightly paraphrase as how do we know he was quite smart? He was intelligent. 
And the answer is, he, we've already seen him use that intelligence. How do we see him use that intelligence? No, nope. okay, Rashi. Likrot Shemot, to call names. Whom did he call names to? All the animals. And we said, and we stressed, and Rashi didn't say this explicitly, but he implied it very clearly, that the name he gave was something fundamental. That, as I already said tonight, that Adam identified the essence of each creature. So he must have been really smart. He would have got a good ATAR score, <laughs> if that is how you measure intelligence. Okay, <laughs> even though, even though, Shinitna Bodea, that there was put into him Dea, which I'll call knowledge or understanding. Maybe knowledge, sorry. Bina is understanding. Likrot Shemot, to call names. Lo Nitan Bo Yetzahara. There was not put into him the evil inclination. Ad Achlo Minha, Ad Achlo, sorry, Minha Eitz. Until they um, ate from the tree. The Nichnas Bo Yetzahara. And the Yetzahara entered into him. And at that point, the Yada Ma Ben Tov Lara. At that point, he knew the difference between good and bad. So, just a minute. So the question that Rashi's answering is why weren't they embarrassed? One would naturally think that if people were walking around naked, it would be embarrassing. Or you can say the question of Rashi is why does the Torah need to tell us this? Now we're going to see that according to Rashi, the nakedness is an important part of the story. It leads to what happens next. So we understand why we need to know they were naked. But why do we need to know they were not embarrassed? What does the Torah add with that? So Rashi could be answering that question by saying, this helps us understand what was the difference between before Eitz Hadat and after Eitz Hadat. That's the first point. The, before I go on to the next point, your question. Oh, um, so if evil was um, like an option, um, was it then created Yes, I think it had always been there. Um, at this point, I think I'll say that there's a fascinating comment of Rashi straight from the Midrash at the time of the Eagle Hazahaf. So why did the Jews make the Eagle? They made a big mistake. Why did they make a mistake? They miscalculated. They miscalculated the days. But also, in case they hadn't got the message that um, they worked out Moshe, they thought was a day late. He actually wasn't a day late because they, they miscounted. So... Remember the Rashi? Why? What was, what was a, a bit of a trigger for them to really be convinced that Moshe was dead? Anyone? The darkness. No. Didn't they see like the feet? They saw the coffin. They saw the coffin of Moshe in the sky. And who put it there? The Satan. Okay. So, again, Rashi doesn't say this explicitly, but there's a, a very clear theme in the Midrash. Uh, uh, and it's in the Gemara as well, that the Yetzirah was external to Adam and Chava. It existed, but it was at a distance. The Ramban makes this point more clearly, actually. That it existed, there was a Yetzirah, but it wasn't part of them. Until what happened? Until they ate from the fruit, and when they ate from the fruit, the Yetzirah became part of them. There was already a possibility of making a mistake, of doing the wrong thing. I'm, I'm, I'm getting too deep probably into this right now, but I'll mention it anyway. Obviously, there was a possibility that Adam and Chava could sin. How do we know there was a possibility that Adam and could sin? They did. Yeah, because they did. Thank you. Because they did sin. But notice, what tempted them to sin? We know what's coming next. What tempted them to sin? The snake. And where was the snake in relation to Adam and Chava? Thank you. It was external. It was outside of them. They eat from the fruit. The Yetzirah goes into them. It's also eating the fruit. The fruit is inside. Yes, it's, it's very literal. They're, they're absorbing the fruit. Until, until when? When were they given the, the bracha that the Yetzirah became external? When they accepted the Torah. When they accepted the Torah, the Midrash says, the Yetzirah came out of them. But it still existed in the world. And that's why, in order to be convinced to make the uh, Egel... They had to have an external stimulus. That's the Satan showing them the coffin in the sky. So the Satan exists, but it's not part of them. Then they made the Egel, and unfortunately it became part of them again. 
So, I don't know if that answers your question. There was evil, there was the potential for evil, but it was external. Okay, but now, but let's get back to Rashi. What I've just said is not really explicit in Rashi. Let's get back to Rashi. What is Dat? Dat Tov Vara. Now, let me just preface this by saying, um, the Rambam, who doesn't always say the same as Rashi, but in this case, he pretty much does. Um, if you look at the second chapter of Morin Nevuchim, the guy for the perplexed, um, the Guy for the Perplex is a very hard book to read. I certainly haven't mastered it. And part of the reason it's a hard book to read because even in the style of the question and answer, there's metaphor and there's depth just in the way that the Rambam presents the material. Um, and it seems to me, or based on what I've learnt, that at the very beginning of Marina Vulchim, um, it's not chapter one, but that's, that's like the preface, but chapter two, um, he asks a question and he gives an answer which really is... The, uh, if you understand that question and answer, you understand the rest of the book or, or what the book is doing. And in fact, you understand much more than that. You understand what the history of the world is. And his question is this. He says, um, he says it in the name of some anonymous questioner. That a learned person gave him this question, which is interesting as well. Um, and the question is, Adam did something wrong. He eats from the tree when he's explicitly commanded not to, and he's punished for it. There's no question it's a very wrong thing to do. But he seems to be rewarded because by eating the tree, the eights hadat tov he reaches a new level of understanding. He now knows the difference between good and bad. So how can that be such a wonderful reward for such a crime? So the Rambam says there at the very beginning of the book in chapter 2, there's like hundreds of chapters in the book, so it's really right at the beginning. He says, previously, before he ate from the fruit, man was absorbed in the difference between emet and sheker, truth and falsehood. And when he ate from the fruit, he became absorbed in good and bad, which he reinterprets or explains as, if, and I'm paraphrasing, nice and not nice. Um, the Sforno says something more explicitly, a rave, what's sweet, and what's not sweet, what's pleasant and what's not pleasant. And the Rambam says this is not an elevation, this is a, um, a, a demotion, because the ultimate, and this fits very much with the Rambam's philosophy, is to be absorbed with truth and falsehood, to know what is true and what is false. When you start being subjective, what is nice and what is not nice, what feels nice and what doesn't feel nice, or using the Sforno's words, what is sweet and what is not sweet, that is a distraction from what's true and false. So, I, I think it is legitimate to say that that Rambam in Morin Avuchim matches up with this Rashi here. Because, right, let me just finish. Rashi says he already had intelligence to name the animals, to know what's true and what's not true. That's the ultimate intelligence. That's the ultimate knowledge. What he was not, at this point, distracted by was what feels nice and what doesn't feel nice. When he eats from the fruit, then he says, ooh, being naked is uncomfortable. Being naked is wrong. It's ra as opposed to tov. It's not false as opposed to true. You can't say being naked is false, but you can say being naked is wrong. Now, why was being naked wrong? So here, although Rashi doesn't say, you have to talk about sexual impulse and sexual attraction, that before they ate from the tree, uh, and this comes clear, very clear in the next Rashi, by the way, so I'm not just making this up, that sexual activity wasn't considered as something embarrassing, something um, that has to be hidden away. It was considered the same as eating, for instance. And that's why there was no embarrassment in walking around naked. But once you eat from the fruit, then you have a sense of what's tov vara, and then you have a sense of what's good and bad and what's right and wrong and what's appropriate and inappropriate. And then if you're naked, you'd be embarrassed. But prior to eating from the fruit, when you're just focusing on what's true and false, then sexual activity is, as in, is not distinct from any other type of human activity and it doesn't generate embarrassment. Yes? Um, it's a little late on question. First of all, why... You said that he showed ultimate intelligence through naming animals. Well, because we understand, I'm not sure you were here that week, that as, as the way you explained Rashi on Pasuk Kaf is um, what the, the names that he gave them yeah, showed, their char- showed the characters. And, and Rashi said, um, 
כל נפש חיה אשר יקרא לו האדם שם, שם, sorry, הוא שמו לעולם. And Rashi added that word, but they are the names forever. They are the intrinsic essence of the thing. And you need intelligence to determine that. No, it wasn't God. On the contrary, on the contrary. If you look in Pasuk Yotet, it wasn't, well, you could perhaps say it wasn't a Ruch Kodesh, but it doesn't actually, sorry, you can say it was a Ruch Kodesh, but it doesn't sound like that. But Yahweh El Ha'adam Lirot Ma Yikra Lo. It's an amazing verse, amazing quote. Hashem brought the animals to the man to see what he would call them. As if uh, uh, Hashem says, look, I've created this animal, but I'm going to leave it to you to use your intelligence to determine its essence. And then, another question. So, you talked about how, like, this, like, the, how we complex, complicate sort of questions from... True and false to good and bad, yeah. yes. And it's a distraction, so... Yes. So, us philosophizing ideas, is that not what we're meant to be doing? Us philosophizing ideas, is that not what we're meant to be doing? I like the verb philosophizing as a gerund, I like that. Um, <laughs> I think the Rambam would say, no, it's not a gerund, it's a participle, sorry, it was me trying to show off. Um, I think the Rambam would say, yes, it's a distraction. Um, I, I don't know what Rashi would say explicitly, because Rashi doesn't say, but I was, I was ho- hoisting Rashi onto the back of the Rambam. And the Rambam does say, yes, ultimately... We should think we should philosophize um, about the nature of God and truth and falsehood. That's really what we should focus on. That's a very big. Big. It's very vague. Yes, it is very vague, and uh, I, I I did cover myself by saying I don't pretend to understand all of Marivuchim, and I can also say it's not for our subject right now. Okay, <laughs> so let's take this question. Um, in the pasuk, just. Why didn't they say Hadam Ishtok? Couldn't it just say Vayushnehem Arumim? Could it have managed without Hadam Ishto? Just say Vayushnehem Arumim. My first thought is yes, but it's interesting. Um, as I say many times, if Rashi doesn't have a problem with it, then we shouldn't. Um, the, the fact that we do. Um, I'm not saying the question's invalid. Sure, and I'm sure, I mean, in many cases, we'll, we'll find other Meforshim who do come. I don't know about this particular case. But the fact is, Rashi doesn't see it as a problem. He doesn't identify it as something superfluous. Maybe otherwise, well, uh, I was going to say, we wouldn't know who Shnehem is, but there are only two people in the world at this time, so we probably would. Okay, now, as I said, Kafhei um, really starts the new part of the story, and Perak Gimel Pasuk Aleph is the continuation. And it says... And the snake was. Now, arum here has a different meaning. It means clever. Notice just by the way, that even though it's the same word in the previous Pasuk, arumim, plural, and here arum, Unkelos translates it in a different way. In the previous Pasuk, Unkelos translated it as artilain, and here he translates it as arim. It's two different words. They just happen to be um, um, synonymous in terms of they are expressed in the same word. And Rashi doesn't make the obvious comment, which is so obvious that isn't it like funny that the two, the man and woman are described as arumim and the nachash is described as arum. No, apparently it's just two different meanings. Anyway, he was arum mikol chayat hasadeh. He was cleverer than all the beasts of the field. Asher asa Hashem elokim, which Hashem elokim had made. Vayome el ha'isha. And he spoke to the woman. So as we all know, the snake was a talking snake. Now, again, um, the Rambam, also in Mara Nebuchim, says that these early, the very, very early parts of the Torah, and including what happened in Gan Eden, is a metaphor. If you want to take it literally, that's absolutely fine. If you want to take it metaphorically, you've got the Rambam on whom to base. Mm-hmm. So we won't get into the question of what does a talking snake look like or sound like. It, according to the way the Pesukim tell us the story, it was a talking snake. As I say, you can take it literally, you can take it metaphorically. Anyway, the talking snake said to the woman, Afki Amar Elohim, and I'll leave that untranslated, or I'll leave Afki untranslated, but God said, Lo tochlu mikol eitz hagan. You, didn't, you can't eat from all the trees of the garden. 
Okay, that's a long pasuk. There's a lot to say. So we'll start with Rashi on Vahanachash Haya Arum. And he says, Ma inyan ze lakan. What is this matter doing with this? In other words, what's the connection? What's the juxtaposition from Bet Kafhei to Gimel Aleph? Why do we go from the fact that the man and the woman were naked and not embarrassed to the Nachash talking to Chava and saying about eating the fruit? And then he says, Hayalo lismoch, it should have joined the following pasuk. Vayas elokim la adam uli ishto ketonet or vayalbishem that the God, God made for the man and his wife clothes of ore, of skin, and he clothed them. That should have been the next Pasuk. Now that is Perak Gimel, Pasuk Kaf Aleph. If you jump to there, let's try and understand what Rashi is saying, because it needs a little bit of work on. So what we've had between Aleph and Pasuk Kaf is basically the whole story about eating from the fruit. And by the way, that included once Adam and Chava ate from the fruit, they were embarrassed. They suddenly felt embarrassed that they were naked. Rashi has a very non-literal pshat on that, but the simple pshat is they were naked and they were embarrassed. And what did they do, by the way, when they were embarrassed and they were naked? Apart from hiding from Hashem. Uh, anyone remember? Have a look. What's that? Yeah, sorry, Pasuk Zion. What they did in response to their nakedness? They put fig leaves. They, they made, well, they sewed fig leaves and they made belts. Okay, remember that because, so the story goes on and Hashem is uh, somewhat cross and he punishes Adam and Chava and the snake and then Pasukaf Aleph, Vayas Hashem Elokim la Adam Ulishto Katonet Or Vayalbishem. And Rashi says that should have been the next Pasuk. Anyone got any questions on Rashi saying that should have been the next Pasuk? Yes? No? no? If they didn't mind that they were naked, why is there a need to dress them? If they didn't mind that they were naked, why is there a need to dress them? Ah, so, if, if, uh, so why would Hashem be dressing them at this point? Yeah. Okay. Also, who are they embarrassed about? Like, embarrassment implies, like, I get embarrassed in front of... Another person. Yeah. And there were no other people. Yeah. Okay, so, well, that's an interesting question. Maybe, uh, okay, um, I've got three answers. Either they were embarrassed in front of animals whom they shared the world with. No, you don't get that one. Okay. Um, I, uh, this is not a question to be answered, but would someone feel comfortable walking naked even when there's no other people there? I mean, I don't mean in one's own bathroom. I mean, walking down the street. If you know there was no other people there. Not a single other person was there. Would one really want to walk down the street naked? Don't answer. But I suspect, I suspect that humankind has an innate sense of a certain proprietary which is independent of other people being there. And the third answer, which will work, despite your turning up your nose at my first two attempts, the third answer, and this is one clearly in the story, they were embarrassed in the front of Hashem. And it was because of Hashem's presence that they hid. Okay, so um, Sarah, your, your point that why would Hashem make them clothes if they weren't embarrassed? Um, so how can Pasuk Kaf Allah follow from here? Let me come back to that in a minute. I want to say that maybe it was just me that I would have always thought that Pasuk Kaf Aleph, where Hashem makes them clothes, is a response to what's happened, which is pretty much actually what you're saying. It follows naturally at the end of the story of eating the fruit and realizing they were naked. Rashi says no. And Rashi is basing himself on one opinion in the Midrash. There are two opinions. But Rashi says, no, this Pasuk, Pasuk Kaf Aleph, chronologically belonged after Pasuk Kaf Hay. So they were naked, and Hashem made them clothes of or of skin. Now, um, why, do we, why does Rashi say that? Why doesn't he think that Pasuk Kaf Aleph comes at the end of the story? Two reasons. Two possible reasons. One is that Hashem wouldn't make them wonderful, beautiful, miraculous clothes of ore, of skin, and that doesn't, uh, it's not quite clear what it means, but the Midrash certainly says it, it's not like animal skin that he just uh, happened to be around, but it's something miraculous, it's something amazing, it's something divine. He's not going to do that in response to the mess that they've created. Oh, suddenly you realize you need clothes because you ate from the tree, which you shouldn't have done. You've just voided the one mitzvah I gave you, that's a disaster, and now I'm going to give you beautiful clothes. 
the, the beautiful clothes seem to be something more than a response to a terrible mess up by, by humanity. That's point one. Point two, if it's just meeting the needs of clothes for modesty, then as I pointed out, that's no longer, the, that's not needed. Why doesn't Hashem need to make them clothes for modesty? Because they made the fig leaves. Okay, tucked away and often overlooked is the fact that Adam and Chava made clothes for themselves. So when Hashem makes clothes, it's not a response to the um, eating the fruit. It's Hashem making clothes. Why did he make them clothes? Well, maybe because it was cold. And I don't say that as a joke. I say that's what the Mephoshim suggests. There was a practical need for clothes. So that's what Hashem made them. And then the, the whole thing about the nakedness and the fruit and, and the realizing they were naked, that happened later. So anyway, the point is that Rashi says that Pasuk Kafalov should have come um, straight away. So why instead is Pasuk Kafhei joined to Pasuk Aleph? That's Rashi's question. Having said that Pasuk Kaf Aleph should have gone after Pasuk Kafhei, it didn't. You have this whole interlude, the whole story of the Nachash and the fruit. Why is the story of the Nachash put straight after the fact that they were naked? And for Rashi, he shows that the two are linked together by this idea of nakedness. In other words, what the Nachash did, what she wants to say, was a response to the fact that they were naked. That's why the two Pesukim are juxtaposed. Now, what does that mean? Okay, we're going to get a bit uncomfortable here. So he says, should have come here, but instead you had the whole story. But rather it comes to teach you this juxtaposition of the Nachash speaking to Chava straight after Pasuk Cafe that says they were naked. For what reason did the snake literally jump on them? In other words, did the snake uh, act and get them into trouble? And, oh, I'm really going to have to stop very, very soon just as we get to the really interesting bit. He saw them naked. And taking, uh, having sexual relations in sight of everything, it doesn't, I, I literally didn't say everyone because of your question, but everything. And he, had a des- he, the snake, had a desire for her. So very quickly, and I'm sort of 9.30 now, I'm sorry just to, to run over, so, but I can't just leave it like this. So the point that Rashi is making is that what, what caused the snake to act? The snake had a liking and attraction for Chava. Um, the snake wanted to be with Chava. Because he saw them naked, and he saw them engaging in sexual relations, which they didn't hide because they didn't feel any need to hide that. Like I said, it was an action like eating, and we didn't hide their eating. So having relations also we didn't hide. But the Nachash, as a result, acted the way he did. And, and I'll just tell you right now, he wanted Adam to eat the fruit so Adam would die, and then he would be left alone with Chava, which is what he wanted. Now, there's a lot of anthropomorphism there, which is problematic. There's a lot of interspecial sexual attraction, which is problematic. And also, if you're not familiar with this Rashi, it sort of changes the nature of the story a bit. But that is what Rashi says. And in particular, Rashi says it because to explain the juxtaposition between the story of the Nachash and the fact they were naked. We have to stop there. We will carry on next week. Amir Tashem.